Hey, Don. Good morning. A couple weeks ago, you sent me an article from the New York Times, and it was about headlines and media headlines, and more specifically about COVID in the headlines. And here's the best paragraph I read. Bruce Sasserdote, an economics professor at Dartmouth College, noticed something last year about the COVID-19 television coverage that he was watching on CNN and PBS. It almost always seemed negative, regardless of what he was seeing in the data or hearing from scientists he knew. When COVID cases were rising in the U.S., the news coverage emphasized the increase. When cases were falling, the coverage instead focuses on those places where cases were rising. And when vaccine research began showing positive results, the coverage downplayed it as far as Sasserdote could tell. But he was not sure whether his perception was correct. To check, he began working with two other researchers building a database of COVID coverage from every major network, CNN, Fox News, Politico, The New York Times, and hundreds of other sources in the U.S. and overseas. The researchers then analyzed it with a social science technique that classifies language as positive, neutral, or negative. The results show that Sacerdote's instinct had been right, and not just because the pandemic has mostly been a grim story. The coverage by U.S. publications with a national audience has been much more negative than coverage by any other source that the researchers analyzed, including scientific journals, major international publications, and regional U.S. media. The most well-read U.S. media are outliers in the terms of their negativity, Molly Cook, a co-author of the study, told me. About 87% of COVID coverage in national U.S. media last year was negative. The share was 51% in international media, 53% in U.S. regional media, and 64% in scientific journals. Notably, the coverage was negative in both U.S. media outlets with liberal audiences, like MSNBC, and those with conservative audiences, like Fox News. And Don, it was just a fascinating article that kept on going about why is it that we have such negative articles? What does this all mean? To help us sort of sort all this out, we brought somebody in with experience. We brought somebody in named Mark Snyder. He has over 20 years as an experience as a journalist. He's worked for both the Free Press and the Oakland Press. We're hoping he can kind of help us understand what all this means. Mark, thank you so much for joining us today, and I'll let you lead off. What did you think about the article? I thought it was interesting. I'm kind of curious, though, about the roots of it. I mean, negative coverage, this is a pandemic, and I guess it's turned into a pandemic, but I mean, even when it started, I think that the focus was to warn people. I think that there was some, maybe this is idealistic, and maybe there was some thought about, you know, that the unknown was far more concerning than the known. And so to focus on the negative was almost a protection or I don't know, maybe not scare tactic, but it's something to tell the general population, you know, you need to be careful of this because we don't know the answers of where it's going. Do you think it's still staying too negative though? Do you think that we should be focusing more on positive headlines? Again, this is an article written two weeks ago, and it still seems like most of the headline articles are negative. Now, you can definitely point to states like our own where case rates are rising, but do you think there should be a different narrative or, or different sorts of words that are being used in the journalism? Well, I think the positive aspects of the pandemic, I guess, are really the vaccine and uh, the hope there. And so there's been some coverage of that, but I think that you know, based on, it's going to take some time for the coverage to reflect that because the general population in a lot of states still hasn't received the vaccine. It's only been specific populations. It's happening here now in Michigan. But I think as that comes, I assume that the coverage would reflect that because I think people in these situations, especially in journalism, and I'll, I'll speak to that, you know, it reflects the people who are making the decisions. And a lot of those people probably haven't had the vaccine to this point. So as their hope 
increases, then I assume that the real coverage would probably reflect that. As cynical as that is, it probably is reality. I don't think that's cynical at all, actually. I thought immediately when I was reading the article, the old adage that uh, if it bleeds, it leads, and that negative news is what makes people listen. But if the news is a reflection of the way the authors and the writers are feeling, I think that's far more legitimate. And even more so if their perspective is, hey, we have to protect the public safety, that is also quite noble. And it's a little different than the perspective I had from reading it initially. The article has a quote where it says, look, we're just giving the audience what they want. And Don, as you kind of said, negative stories seem to be the ones that are maybe clicked on or attract the most attention. Mark, would you say that's accurate in, in a newsroom? Are people thinking about that kind of stuff? Well, I'll, I'll draw a distinction here. It's uh, probably more than a difference. The idea that lumping newspapers in with television news is really antithetical because Television news rely on, you know, the visual. They rely on the ratings far more. And whereas newspapers used to, you know, it was subscriber counts and they were party to advertisers and everything. It's less of that, you know, in the last, uh, even almost this generation, I guess, the last decade or so. And newspapers, you know, have always been more independent in terms of a journalistic focus in trying to go down the middle and cover the positive and the negative of all of these situations and bring the reality and allow people to make their own decisions. Whereas even in your intro, Zach, you've talked about, you know, there's different slants to the, to the television news in terms of Fox news versus MSNBC, et cetera. So I, I think there's a big difference. And it sounds like a lot of this article is reflecting the television coverage and not as much of the newspaper coverage. Do you agree with what the article, the premise of the article, I guess, in terms of, do you think things have been maybe too negative? Have you thought much about that as a journalist? I, I guess, you know, I, I would like to think, oh my gosh, well, you know, Mr. Snyder here, he's a former journalist. He must all the time be sitting around thinking about coverage slants or how things are being covered. But then again, do you not think about so much no. that kind of stuff? I do think about that, but I don't know that it's necessarily intentional. I think that the, there's just an overall, as you know, Don referenced, you know, the bleeds at leads. I think that's more of a television focus because they've seen the realities of how that interacts, you know, how that they've seen the advertising goes up. Look at Fox News rated the highest, they had the highest ratings, you know, in the country for all these years. And that's because, you know, there is a, a negative slant to every, all of their coverage, not just pandemic vaccine, that pandemic and COVID related. I think that that's just a general thing in terms of politics. You know, they focus on a lot more of the negative of the other side and MSNBC, you know, in the last couple of years too, is, is focused on the negative other side. You don't see people talking about, you know, the positive bills as much that are going through the politics and that type of thing, whereas focusing on the negatives and problems with people's personal lives of politicians or things like that. Mark, you were involved in the news organizations from 1995 through 2017 in a time of tremendous change. And my question was, how has this changed as the papers are less in, in, on paper coming to my home and more online? And do the individual stories and getting clicks, is that measured or are you unaware of how that whole calculation takes place? Well, the way it takes place, yeah, I'm unaware. We, I think we were at the journalist level, at the writer level, we didn't know how it takes place, but we were surely aware of what the clicks were and you know how and dynamics and i think there was a lot of feeling out process at least when i was there i mean i guess a lot of that 
evolution happened more in, in the decade 2010 till 2017. But there was a point, you know, in the free press newsroom, by the time I left, it was a big board up on the screen, up on the wall in the office. I wasn't in the office that much as a sports writer, but when I was in there, you could see it. The items that had the most clicks were the biggest in this. It was like one of those moving, moving screens where, where the I don't even know what they're called, but the, the different sizes of, of the articles and the headlines were based on the number of clicks where I covered Michigan football. So mine, that worked out well for me because people were obsessed <laughs> with Michigan football, but that's just innate and in, to the circumstance and to the topic versus, you know, I think positive or negative, I think in that circumstance. But I did notice though, when I wrote a story that was negative, there was a lot more interaction and interest and the clicks were a lot higher than usually when it was positive. And some of that, I think, is because the negative a lot of times, you know, draws in. We talked about this when we were journalists, especially in sports, that the negative would draw in, draw in the opposite fan bases as well in sort of a hate watching type of thing. Plus the people who were the fans of that team, whereas the positive, the other teams didn't really care about reading about the positive of their rivals. Would this board that was changing size based upon number of click, would that play a large role in dictating what the next story would be or what the follow-up coverage would be? It didn't with me as an individual journalist, but because I had, you know, I had established myself to that point that I had independence about what I thought I should be writing and stuff like that. I would assume though, in some of the other sections and with few less experienced reporters, that might've driven some of their coverage, but I can't speak to that. I don't, I don't know specifically how editor, but I, if it's up there, I assume that the, the leadership of the paper and the editors you know, felt it was pretty important to be assessing that. I don't know that it was necessarily only a motivational tactic. I think it was kind of a proof, you know, to them about what is driving things. And that shouldn't be, you know, as an idealistic journalist, but as a realistic journalist, I kind of understood where that was going. One of the things I was sort of wondering about is, could you take me through, pretend I'm a, a reporter and, and you're my editor. We're in the newsroom and basically, we know we've got to continue our COVID coverage because we've got readership that wants to read it. And I guess I was just sort of curious about how would I know what to be writing next? Or would I be coming to you suggesting the next story or the next thing that needs to get covered? And then my question is, once I've written my, my first draft, what's the process that you have to look at it to maybe shape it, edit it? Is there a lot of discussion about the angle that's going to get taken or how this headline is going to come out so that we decide if it's going to be more of a negative or, or positive slanted story? Again, you know, at this point, uh, I'm, I'm a couple of years removed, so I can only speak in generalities, but the way that things work, especially in terms of the, like things like that with COVID, COVID is the broad topic. And then within that, there are different, it, it's kind of infected different beats. And so you know, it's not like a normal topic because there are so it affects the whole paper and everyone's trying to stake out their claims. It's not necessarily that they maybe at the beginning they had a COVID reporter, but now, you know, everyone is kind of under this umbrella. So the person who covers education, who covers K-12 education, let's say their job is to focus on how it affects the schools and what has changed in terms of, you know, we've seen schools go remote. We've seen schools be in person and how those are affected between school sport and the sports writers the high school sports writers. Now they have to focus on whether the schools are in play or the antigen testing that the sports have to do. You know, everyone's got kind of their own different beat and different aspect of it. The health reporters both focusing on the vaccines, you know, the uh, Metro reporters focusing on distribution sites. So everyone's got kind of their own little niche under the bigger umbrella of COVID reporting. So I think that everyone would have an assignment. I think in, in sports, it's obviously COVID has not 
in fact, but in terms of, like we have high, they would have a high school reporter and they have to kind of initiate themselves. A good editor would kind of steer the person to a topic and say, well, here's some ideas. But, you know, a good reporter should have their own ideas. And that's kind of the way I think a lot of it has gone. And it depends on whether they're a veteran reporter or not. And obviously, a lot of veteran reporters are no longer working at those papers because whether because they took buyouts or because of downsizing or whatever. So, you know, sometimes the younger reporters could use some direction as well and some suggestions. In terms of the drafts, you know, I think it happened. It's not the way it used to be. You know, when I started in the business in the late 90s, there was a lot more, there were different read-throughs, like you would write it and then an assistant editor would read it and then someone higher and then it'd go back to you. And if you wanted to, you know, negotiate some of those points, so be it. But now it's so fast that it, they're barely read. And that's why you see probably more errors in newspapers now than there were before previously too, because of the time element. Was there ever any conversations about emphasis? Hey, I don't like what we're emphasizing in this story. I want you to reshape it a little bit. Or from what I'm seeing, we need to really rethink how we're emphasizing this story. I'm just still trying to think about Emphasizing oh, yeah. in terms of placement in the paper or on the website uh, or just just I guess negativity versus positivity. And if there is any emphasis, I just I found this story really interesting by the New York Times just saying, look, like it seems like we are covering this maybe at a more negative slant than anywhere else in the world. And as Don said, like, is it just something about look, negativity gets gets coverage, as you said about Michigan football, that seems to get good hits. I just wondered though if somebody looks at some uh, a reporter's draft and they say, you know, I, I'm seeing this a little bit differently than you're covering it. Maybe we need to to shift around the wording or the language to, to or the tone of the article, if that makes sense. Well, I think you need to draw a distinction too between a column and a reported story. Column is the opinion of the writer and, th and that's their opportunity to put their slant and you see more of the eye and maybe some personal experience and some and thoughts that way. And then there's more flexibility to as you say, slant the opinion, because people I don't understand that that's an opinion piece. In terms of a factually reported story, that's a whole different opportunity, because then it's it's the facts of what happens. I mean, you can order in terms of where you put those facts within the story. But and then the, then the third part, I guess, is the headlines on either one are determined by the editors and not by the writers, which and often this is a very great frustration with writers is that they don't get to write their headlines and people think though their their name is the one that's on the story and, and the general populace doesn't understand that and a lot of times those headlines I guess I can't speak to that because I never wrote the headlines but I did I guess in college but not in not in a professional setting and you know you don't know the reason that they did that maybe they are looking for clicks with the sensational and then they don't really care what happened if this if it reflects the story as accurately as it could be. And I've noticed the headlines are different sometimes in print than they are online. And that must be angling for a different audience. And maybe that also angles to the different perspective on the story. Yeah, it could be. It could be because of space. But yeah, I think, Don, you're probably, I think that at the beginning, it was maybe a space thing. And now it's probably more, you know, a visual click thing as they've learned, you know, with the SEO, search engine optimization, the idea of how that could be and how it's perceived. You know, and you want to, you have a shorter time period probably to grab the reader online. And it's, a, and those headlines are appearing in different places, either on a rundown on the front page, or if they go to that specific section of the paper versus someone who's holding the print copy and actually deciding, well, I'm going to sit through here and see what interests me and catches my eye, but they're still holding it. It's not, 
vanishing. They're not getting up to do something else necessarily. They've made, made a commitment to read that paper when it's in their hand. When I first read this article, I was like, oh my gosh, I've been manipulated. The media has been lying to me. This has been more positive than negative. And then when I sat and just sort of caught my breath, I was like, oh, there's been lockdowns, infections, hospitalizations, deaths, societal changes, lost opportunities for everybody. And therefore, no, this is a pretty negative story. And therefore, I then sat there and thought, well, it's the media. And the one thing I've noticed over the last 20 years as sort of being an adult is that everybody in America seems to agree on one thing. Everybody hates the media, right? Everybody thinks the media is always biased and they're always telling lies and therefore they never just write what they want to hear. And I guess my question is, why is it that everybody seems to hate the media? And yet at the same time, we love the media. We love to read it. We love to interact with it and think about it and then hate on it some more. Well, I think it, it, a lot of times it's the only outlet they have for some of this information. There's a unusual relationship as a result of that, because this is, you know, a lot of times in the rest of other parts of your life, you can have your own personal experience and make an assessment based on that. But a lot of times, but in this situation, as the media's role has grown, not necessarily in a great way, you know, pe before, you know, people would pay attention to the newspapers or they'd watch the three channels, let's say before our generation, obviously, on TV. And that was where that was a very filtered experience because it was limited. Now there's so much of it, especially with social media and people interpreting things on social media, the reality of where you're getting the information from become shifts that perception a little bit. I guess my question then is, if we know that people like negative stories, does that say something about us as Americans? Um, does that say something about us culturally or just sort of what's kind of inherently in us that we strive to for negativity? As you said, negativity uh, opened up more, more clicks on Michigan football stories. Why is it that we like negative and don't just want to read positive things? You're saying as Americans versus... As well, other countries? if I'm going with just the study that they gave us saying right. that in Europe and other international journals and stuff like that, it looks like they were giving more positive coverage. And therefore, is it is it a market driven thing of we know people want negativity, that's why we're going to print it? Or do you think it says it's something about just us as a culture that we thrive on reading the negative? Uh, <laughs> I, I think that, yeah, maybe maybe it's inherent to people's I, I don't know, I kind of subscribe to the whole fire hose thing that we're just being inundated by so much information. And we have no we don't have many guardrails in this country as they do in some of the other countries in terms of the media in terms of social media, in terms of trying to contain, you know, the information from getting and social media has influence has tilted the perception. And I think it's, I don't know, if scientifically, but you know, quote unquote, rewired the brain, whereas this generation views things a lot differently. And maybe there is more cynicism and more negativity, because that's just the way that people see those opportunities right now. And they can, they have their, they're able to put their own filter. But the problem is other people are putting filters on it for them beforehand. Inherently, I think all news is bad, in that if everything is good, and things are pleasant, it's not a story. What's there to tell? Everybody's healthy. Things are going well. Great. That's not a news story. What's a news story is the train crash in Taiwan. What's a news story is a shooting that takes place in Texas. These are news stories. Just everybody's working well and going about their day is not news. So I think there's a fundamental realization that bad things happen and that's what a news story is. If it's all good, what would there be to write? And what, and what media outlets would exist? But don't exactly. you think... 
but don't you think every once in a while we need a pat on the back? I mean, this done a long time ago, we had a podcast about how we don't have parades anymore, right? We don't celebrate anybody. We're also cynical and having to take everybody down that we can't just throw some ticker tape in the air. And what if just happen, you know, we just happen to have a really good unemployment number or, hey, you know what, like right now is better than a year ago, or it's better than 10 years ago. I feel like sometimes we need to be reminded about those things, don't you think? Well, I'm not sure. And Mark was talking about Michigan football. So let's go back to that lens just for a moment, because I think we're familiar with it. Mark, I'm imagining that you wrote many more articles on receivers, quarterbacks than you did on offensive linemen. Is that the case? Absolutely. Yeah. And could you ever see yourself writing an article that says there's five offensive linemen, none of them are spectacular, but overall they do a pretty good job and consistently open up holes and protect the quarterback. Well, and that, that became, you know, the challenge of that. And that's something that you've seen in kind of the evolution of what's working now in terms of those athletic, you know, sports uh, writers, the ones that are being able to have more reach are showing people things that they haven't seen. So like in that situation, Don what, and Zach, what I would do is I would try to find something that was interesting about those offensive linemen that really wasn't on the field. You know, I started to get away from, you know, the game analysis and the game coverage about opening the holes and more about, you know, this guy was an electrical engineer and he's balancing that with football and here are his time constraints and here are the challenges he's facing. Or this guy came from this place and he didn't have a traditional background growing up that his other teammates did. And here's, you know, what shaped him. It became more of a personality profiles than, than the actual you know, football, tech, football technique. Because this is something you learn too with the pro, in sports, I guess with the profession of games and the availability of games and, you know, not just having everything available now becoming having everything available to you you became this opportunity where people could see for themselves all of those other things so why should you tell them so you need to tell them things that they can't see and that became kind of my mantra as I went through that part of my career is to try to show them things that they didn't see yeah and that's what I think my argument is that the general society, when things are going well, is a good offensive line. We're just grinding it out. It's not real pretty. It's not real filled with glory, but we're getting it done as a legislator, as a teacher, as a worker. People are just getting things done. And if there's no bad news, there's interest stories and there's occasionally really interesting people but there's not a tremendous amount to write an article about unless you're writing about something that's going wrong. But don't you think that, again, is that why I asked that question about like, what is it about America? Like, are we just self-loathing all the time? Why aren't we celebrating the fact that we have literally produced vaccines within a year to try to start fighting this virus off? And I know there's been some stories about that, but that's a technological marvel. And only in the modern American system of, of government and biopharma co cooperation could we have done that. Um, and I just think we could be talking about those things or every once in a while just reminding people like, hey, we didn't get into another war today. Or I don't know, I, I, I do think maybe it wouldn't be bad to have a couple nice things to kind of hang our hat on, right? Just to kind of boost our egos. But we measure it not against the history of vaccines. We don't, the average American's not saying, wow, vaccines usually take at least six years. The average American's like, my iPhone patch came last week. <laughs> I, well, I it, Everything is so short term and the expectation is for things to be so quick. I think the question among many people is why this is, why is this taking so long? Which it should have been, oh my gosh, this is happening so quick. The short term is always so negative. 
we can see that in health and in racism and in economic opportunity. And every day we can find lots of data points that say everything's terrible. But then when you take it out a decade or 50 years or 100 years and look at where things have gone, everybody says, oh my God, look at things are getting better. Is it therefore we need the, the short-term self-loathing to then improve things over the longer term? I just wonder sometimes if we don't, you know, take time just to smell the roses a little bit. I mean, is it possible too, Zach, that just we've all become more individualistic and more concerned about our own, I guess, bubbles and overused term, but our own personal lives. And, you know, when things infringe from the outside infringe upon that, like COVID that are, that affect a, a greater, pe greater circumstance and affect, you know, the country, the state, the country, the world, then you're kind of forced into that communal conversation. But for the most part, you're dealing with your own things, you know, your own home, your own family circumstance. And this is something that kind of steps in there and it becomes a little individualistic. And that's maybe how people say it. If something, it, like Don said, if everything's going well in your life, well, then you're going to maybe continue to keep it going that way, but that you want to keep it personal to you as opposed to looking to the communal good or just the communal circumstance. And I, to build on Mark's point, to build your own social media perspective or the picture you want to send out to society that many people are focusing on, what are they cultivating in their Instagram feed or Facebook book feed or whatever to show the world how they are doing. And so that's where they're trying to putting their effort. And that brings up a really good point about the individualism that Mark pointed out is the rise of social media and the idea, the flattening of the internet, the flattening of the publishing curve. And all of a sudden, anybody can be a publisher of knowledge. And I remember, Mark, about 10 years ago, reading the free press, maybe it was 15 years ago, where all of a sudden at the bottom of free press stories were comments. And, you know, you'd almost <laughs> sort of like scroll through the story just to see crazy town. And I always just remember being blown away by how nasty and partisan the comments were both sides. And it just, it didn't seem like anybody was adding any extra insight to the article that had been written, but it seemed like it was the new world of everybody just creates their own narrative and their own media. What was the free press thinking when they opened up comments? Did, did you guys find them helpful or was it like, oh my God, I think we've unleashed Pandora's box? Oh yeah, absolutely. They thought, the editors thought it would, it would drive engagement and more people would come to the free press to get into those discussions. But as writers, we hated it. And I think they probably still do. I don't know how much they still do it because you didn't really, it, it, they could frame it however they wanted and their discussions would veer off into certain circumstances. And they weren't necessarily places, it was, it's not designed, those articles are not designed for commentary that are designed to be processed, you know, on your own. And the worst part of it too became the anonymity of it. So people could make up, you know, John three, four, five and say that's who they are and they could say whatever they want and there was no accountability. Well, there was accountability to me because I had my name on the text that was above that. So everyone knew that I'm the one who produced that, but no one knows who this guy is who made these comments. And that, I think that got a little out of hand and it became a beast that they couldn't control. Like you said, in Pandora's box became a challenge, but I think that, that was part of this shift to the internet, you know, and putting it all on the web that they tried all these different things and they continue to try all these things because their market share continues to shrink. And they're trying to engage people however they can, even at the expense of, you know, safety and uh, consideration for pr the product they're presenting. I was thinking about the newspapers and Zach and I, Mark, I'm sure you're probably aware of this. Years ago, there was this big movement for MOOCs, massive online classes that would be run by Harvard professors and anybody could take it for free. And people thought 
this would replace all education. I remember there's much teeth gnashing discussion about it. And ultimately nothing happened. Only 2% of people took that took the class actually finished it. And it became just kind of a, an opportunity that didn't come to fruition. But in some ways, the media game has gone the opposite in that it's consolidated. You don't have as much regionalism and you have a few central writers writing for the Times or the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post, and everybody's getting that from just them. And so it is just such a weird world where they've got to try anything to fight for market share. Yeah, there's a lot of challenges, I think, in that, and they're looking for whatever they can and that continue. And then they had to figure out, I mean, I guess, you know, Twitter, especially and Facebook, those became competitors to them. And then they had to determine what, how to embrace them. And they did that ten, tenuously. And I don't think it's gone exactly the way they hoped. Like, so, I mean, that was one of our constant battles, you know, was Twitter, for example. Like, do we, when you get a scoop, which is obviously very valuable and not, not quite the same as it is, as it is now, you know, but it always was, you know, that was the gold standard. You get the scoop before your competitors. Do you put it on Twitter or do you try to find a hope you get people to the website and you say, come to our website for this instead of putting it out there? Cause, and that was before there was subscriptions and paywalls, you know, in the free press and the news. So that was always the challenge, you know, but I don't think that we came to learn, at least as writers, that people don't care so much about the competition. You know, it meant a lot to us that we had the story before our competitor, but the general pe- general reader didn't really care about who had it first. And it, so that didn't drive the content or loyalty to your brand necessarily, because I guess as you guys can probably answer this better, but did, were you keeping track of who was having more scoops and try to read more of them? No, you go to the... I go to the free press once a day, usually in the morning, just to kind of get a general sense of the headlines of Michigan. And that's about it. I, I don't even think about the competitors because that's just a routine for me, I guess. I read the Wall Street Journal every day and I used to read the free press, but don't anymore as it's diminished so much. But yeah, I think I tried to tell students that this used to be an identifying feature of a person, of a family. If you were a Detroit News family versus a Detroit free press family. And it changed your perspective on the world. And that is still to a degree true of the Wall Street Journal versus the New York Times, but it used to be much more regional and people would get a morning paper and an afternoon paper and it shaped who they were and how they thought about things. And that is really a lost thing. Now, I guess you could be a Fox News person or an MSNBC person, but that just seems so much more, I don't know, I guess it's harder for me to understand because I'm not a TV news person. It seems like your larger newspapers, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, they're probably going to find their way out of this. They seem to have growing reader subscribers over the last couple of years. But what do you think is the future for a regional newspaper like the Free Press and and many others across the nation? They're clearly doing a lot of good reporting on local issues, maybe sometimes not enough reporting on those issues. Are Are people worried about the business models or have they kind of hit bottom and are now finding a way to fight back? Or what do you think the the general mindset is for people that are involved in those organizations? Well, what their mindset is, is that they're still trapped. The leadership there is still trapped in the past and very reluctant to move. And that was part of the reason that I left. And I left the journalism because I, I was frustrated by that things were not as dynamic as they should be. And they had, the, you know, they're trying to move these great ships and they, instead of just potentially blowing up their model and saving their business, and they just refused to do it. Like, for example, I mean, look, we're talking on a podcast. I had pitched, you know, a sports type 
daily podcast to my editors and they just did they just didn't appreciate the idea of that something you know similar to the daily you know that you hear from the new york times and obviously there are a lot more of that now those now but the daily obviously was you know, very innovative when it came out and you take a topic every day and you recap the, he- or you recap the headlines in the morning and people listen to it. Cause I think people didn't necessarily believe in podcasts at that point. And that obviously that's changed quite a bit as well. And maybe some of that's because a lot of the podcasts are free. And so that was part of what the newspaper, you know, people liked it when the newspapers were free online at first. And now that they're in a paywall, but I, I just think they're not dynamic enough. I think that they, what newspapers need to do is give you something you're not getting somewhere else. I've always believed that. And I don't think that enough of that happens in the free press and the news and the local papers. And I think that, you know, when it's local, they, people need to be driven, the reporters need to be driven to find something different and present it as something unique. And then I believe people will continue to, con- to come back for that content, but they have to know that it's going to be there. And I guess I, I live in the sports context because that's really what I did for all that time. And I think that people... They, they're still stuck in this model of reporting on the games and telling you what happened in the games. Well, anyone who's reading your story, watch the game. They, they know what happened in the game now at this point, or they know enough of what happened that they're not going to be reading down to the end where you're talking about what happened in the first half. So I, I just think that, you know, there, you need to give a different take on what's happening. I don't know how much you guys are really into sports, but there's a, there's a new website called the athletic. It's an app. And I think that they do a lot more of the feature stories or different takes on the stories. And I think they've grown quite a bit across the country versus at the expense of newspapers, which are doing a lot of the same old thing. I so subscribe you- to The Athletic and I uh, really enjoy the Wall Street Journal sports, but it's different sports coverage in that it's only two stories a day, but the two stories are much more in depth. It's something I not can't Absolutely. get by watching the Reach YouTube summary of the game. It's the something that's into really examining what is happening in the sports. And I think it's better sports writing. Yeah. The journal for sure. That's definitely true, Don. I have a number of friends who work there and um, yeah, that's always been kind of their philosophy when they brought the sports section back. I think it was 15 or 20 years ago they brought, and they really have gone in depth and they have like, uh, for example, Ben Cohen, you know, I'm sure you're a basketball fan. So he covers the basketball and he just always has a different take on things and different. And it's not all necessarily analytics, it's just a different view or talking about the shoes of people or, or different things. And I think that that's the future. You, you mentioned that the free press maybe hasn't pivoted enough yet. I've noticed they seem to have kind of a partial paywall up. Now there's four subscribers, some certain stories you can't read unless you're subscribing. Do you think they've made enough changes or do you still think that they have the business model possibly correct, but they need to now really rethink how they're covering, as you said, sports or any of these events? Well, you have to want to go and see what's behind the paywall. I mean, that's, that's the key to me. You know, I know it's not very expensive to begin with, but you need to provide content. If you're going to have a paywall, it has to be valuable content behind the paywall versus, you know, just the general. And that's why the New York Times and the Washington Post have their subscriber bases have grown so much because they're offering unique content. And uh, as, as some of it's negative, obviously, as you pointed out here in the premise of this whole podcast today, Zach, but it's something that people can't get somewhere else. And that's something that you need to, you need to offer. If I was a young reporter starting up, you mentioned that a lot of the older reporters have either retired or taken buyouts and gotten out. And therefore a lot of these younger people are the ones who are reporting. Can you give us any sense of what my day's like? How many stories am I maybe working on at the same time? Expectations in terms of, am I expected to be tweeting these things out or uh, is, is a younger journalist life harder 
than maybe 10, 20 years ago? Is it the same, just different expectations? Can you give any sense on that? Oh yeah, totally different life than when I started because you were, yeah, you were doing a story a day and you'd be maybe working on a longer term project, you know, in some of your other time, but you had a set time. You went covered an event, you wrote a story, you were done and that was it. Now you're doing 8 million things and you're just trying, you're constantly going, you're trying to be on social, on Twitter as well, because number one, that's where you get a lot of the information that you're coming from because you find out about things before you would otherwise, and you're able to have direct interactions, whereas access would be limited in other circumstances to athletes and coaches. So now they're interacting on those mediums as well. So that's an opportunity to, you know, where the school in a college setting where the school is restricting your access to the people, that's an opportunity to build sourcing and to connect with the athletes themselves um, but no you're juggling all the plates now and all the balls everywhere to try to do a job of three or four people as opposed to the job of one 20 years ago for sure and i assume the newsmakers are taking control of their message and making it less they don't need the newspapers as much and they don't they can get the message out on their own so they're i assume they're less willing to talk to the reporters yeah and they're more controlling of the access yeah yeah, as well, especially, and this has been the pandemic in terms of sports writers has been one of the worst things that's ever happened. And like, in terms of like, when you cover baseball, I covered baseball for, you know, a number of years. And when you go in, in terms of baseball, it was always unique because you could go in the clubhouse and the clubhouse opened before a major league baseball game at three 30 and the games at what seven. So until about six fifteen, you had the opportunity to talk to the baseball players as a reporter about anything. They'd sit at their locker, they'd be goofing around, whatever, reading, you know, some, not many read the newspaper, but they would be in there and you could build those conversations. You could talk to them about anything. Now in the pandemic, all the baseball clubhouses are closed. Now there's some debate. Is it, are they even going to open again? Is everything just going to be controlled access? And that's how it has become, I mean, in colleges as well. In colleges, when I started, you could talk to whoever you wanted you know, you could request players and they'd make them available for you after games. We would just mill there. And Don, you've been to, you know, all these Michigan football games after the game, you know, in the players parking lot, the players would come out of the tunnel and all the parents would be there to see them. You could just grab whoever you wanted as a reporter and just start talking to them about whatever you wanted about the game. You had tons of different stories outside of just the press conference and they started to shut that down. Now it's, you know, press conferences during the pandemic haven't even been in person. You get one question and they got to go on to the next person. You don't get, it's not like you can raise your hand and call on you, you know, et cetera. So there have been huge changes because of the pandemic and just because it's an opportunity that sports writers fear that it may not go back to what it was because of the distance that was created and all these college and pro organizations realize that that's something that they have more control over now. I got to imagine that was incredibly frustrating because I remember around 2005, 2006, I realized that I could read the press conference transcript and it summarized everything I was going to read and all the articles that were just writers grabbing quotes in the press conference. And did, when that happened, did you experience it that way? Oh, that they started putting up the transcripts? Yeah. yeah it was maddening, obviously, Yeah, because this is our only access. I mean, if we were able to have other access you know, then we could provide something different. But yeah, and that's why you know, press conferences are a tough circumstance to begin with, because you have an idea, you don't necessarily want to throw it out in front of everyone if you have a different kind of idea, but you need to get that insight from the person you're asking the question to. So the best reporters try to find other ways to either write around it or get that information and have their own insight to a certain extent. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. That 
all those things are maddening. The job became so much harder because you had to do the job differently. And, you know, I think for so long, the job was the same, you know, it was routine because there was no internet, there was no social media, there was no you know, restrictions and everything kind of stayed the same for many years. And then as it changed, you know, people had to adapt and a lot of people couldn't adapt. You were a beat writer then, uh, obviously local. Did you ever feel like you got more attention or less attention if a national writer showed up from maybe ESPN or again, one of the more national newspapers, did they get treated more like royalty because their reach was bigger than you or because you were there every day, people felt more comfortable with you to give you maybe any more access? That's a good question. Actually, the national, yeah, that was very frustrating because the national writers would just swoop in, um, but that, you know, from, and talk to the PR people and they would arrange them some access that we didn't get for sure. And, and, you know, I had many discussions with different PR people at U of M and other places, you know, about why that would happen. But, you know, from their end, you know, and now being a PR person, I kind of understand it more that, you know, they, the higher your profile, the better you're doing for your school, because they knew I'd still be there. So they took me for granted. (laughs) I mean, I think that was, it's more of that, you know, that they took me for granted and they knew I would be there, but then they also learned you know, as Don, someone who follows Michigan football pretty closely, you know, I was able to have some stories that they didn't like as much because I had deeper relationships and those caused friction as well. So, and they knew that on the national scale, that probably wouldn't happen, you know, quite as often that they would be treated probably usually better by the national people because they didn't know as much. And I think all the factors we're talking about, which we're talking about in the lens of sports, as we often do, but that applies also to other things in terms of COVID and general news, that it all conspires to make things more negative because the positive is known by everybody. The negative's not. And so to unveil something negative, that's actually more groundbreaking news. Well, there was another article that we looked at that was just from Politico. And the article just sort of looked at Andrew Cuomo versus Vernon Jordan and basically how the media through relationships still has the ability to sort of slant a story or provide positive versus negative coverage. Obviously Cuomo is sort of going down in a heap of flames with his own allegations and and personal poor conduct. They also said though, the guy was just a jerk behind the scenes and didn't really work at trying to give media access or was just kind of mean and standoffish. Whereas Vernon Jordan, uh, a former lawyer for President Clinton, seemed to know everybody. And even though he wasn't always in the headlines, every week he would call a few media friends just to kind of check in on them. And they just talked about how his coverage was very different. I guess my question to you, Mark, is given that you've had to probably do some profiles and you've had to interview coaches and other people out there in society, did you find that if you liked somebody that might shape maybe the kinds of words it would use in the tone of your articles or if you found that person just to be a real jerk that might you know seep into your words now I realize that you're trying to be not biased when you're writing but did you find that it creeps in just because of how you like somebody in your relationship with them uh I, okay I guess there's a distinction here I would say that it wasn't personal. I didn't, it wasn't whether I liked someone or I didn't. And there are many people out there who have strong opinions about what, that they felt that that was not true, that I, that I slanted certain stories to that end. And I heard from them all the time that I didn't like the person, but I would say human nature, and you guys can speak to this too, people that make your job easier, you appreciate. I mean, I don't know that it would, I don't think it was a conscious 
bias, but if your job is easy, if someone makes your job easier, you're more willing to have more information and do your job in a more accurate way, I think. And I think that's true of any profession. I don't think that's just journalists. You know, I think that, I mean, you guys, you guys are teachers, you know, in your class, the students who turn in their assignments all on time and everything, you know, you appreciate that because it makes your job easier. You don't have to track them down and stuff like that. 100%. You know, so it's not a conscious thing that you necessarily like the personality of that student better or something like that. And you're not giving them favors as a result, but you appreciate, you know, what makes it easier in terms of uh, PR people, I guess, and people I dealt with, you know, the ones who made my job were able to, I was able to have an interaction with, let's say, and I wrote something negative, let's say, because it was a negative situation and they're trying to, you know, try to hide that or, or keep it away. If they would have a dialogue with me and a discussion with me about why I did it and see it from my point of view, you know, there would be some kind of interaction that was a positive interaction, at least between, and I would trust them. And then I could talk to them and say, I'm working on this. I know you're not going to burn me, you know, but, and they would try to be able to shape the story. So I would give them a little heads up in certain situations or something like that. I mean, it just became a shifting dynamic, but it, it, for me, I can only speak for me and I can't speak for other people. And this is really makes it hard in that sense, because I can tell you, I never let a personal interaction affect what I wrote. I just, I refused because I, that was an ethical standard that I set, but I don't know that that's true of all journalists. I can't say that. Well, the article talks about Cuomo and Vernon Jordan. On a side note, Vernon Jordan was early, early um, civil rights activist and lawyer. And Malcolm Gladwell has two episodes about him in his season two of Revisionist History, which is certainly worth going back and listening to. But and why Cuomo is a jerk. And in a case, Cuomo seems to be a jerk and is in this point reaping what he sows and that he's an odious person. And he's brought this a bit on himself. But then if you look over at Bill Clinton, who was Vernon Jordan's good friend and very much in the same manner of charming the press and being very welcoming and chatty and seemingly very friendly to people, seems to have gotten away with a lot of stuff, partially maybe because he was so likable and the press painted this nice picture of him. Maybe he cultivated that. And Cuomo is just a jerk and the press has found all the bad things. He's charming. The, is Clinton charming the press? Is that what happened? Yeah, I, I could definitely see that as a factor. And I think that, you know, that's intelligent on his part. You know, you know, you generally want to engage with people who want to engage with you. I mean, that's that's a life thing. It's a journalist thing. And you build sources. I mean, the key to, to being a journalist is to having sources and having people who will tell you things you know, sometimes before other people are going to find out. That's the competitive aspect of it, but that's how you became a good reporter. You're given a certain amount of information, but then you want to find out either the other side or more depth on that information. And you have to have people you can go to to find that out. And in terms of profiles, like you're talking about, you know, Burden Jordan understood early. I mean, maybe it wasn't a conscious necessarily thing to shape his legacy. Maybe that's just his nature and his personality. With Clinton, it seems like that's just his personality. He's an engaging person. He wants to interact with people, he wants to learn. He has a curiosity. And so he engages with more people versus someone whose personality is to be a little more introspective and quiet. Well, they, they're not in that position, whether that was Cuomo necessarily or that's his personality or not, he never made that conscious effort. And some people have to step out of their, you know, go against the grain of their personality too, to accomplish that. But they're obviously would be intelligent and aware enough to realize that. Okay. In terms of relationships, then everyone hates COVID. 
Nobody likes it. Now, nobody has the ability to interview COVID, but if everybody hates it, why wouldn't we want to be publishing more stories where we're talking about our success and driving it back? Don't you think that would be a natural way to, to get people to be more excited about, about our victory over this hated thing? Well, who's your audience, I guess, is the first part. Who are the people? Maybe the people that you're talking about, you know, who would be receptive to that positive message aren't paying attention to any of it. They're not paying attention to the negative either. They're just not engaged with the, with the media that way. And maybe the media and the negative aspects that you're talking about are just reflective of who the audience is that engages that. Don says that he's, you know, he doesn't watch cable news. Okay. So we're, so these analysis that you guys are sharing from these articles are reflective of people who are watching cable news and what, and how they're engaging with it. So maybe the, it's a cycle where they're just feeding the beast. Well, in the old days, it used to always be about kind of the horse race journalism, right? I'm going to call the state on election night for whichever presidential candidate. We want to be the first. Again, if everybody hates COVID, wouldn't you want to have a lot of people leading the charge on looking for positive headlines to say that we're winning, we're, we're, we're close to defeating it, or to declare the war on COVID over? Wouldn't, wouldn't a news organization want to be the ones to do that? Or do you think the stakes are too high because it's just going to be embarrassing when the next outbreak comes out? I think you're looking for a bit of a Cold War journalism. You want to look out and see like how we're defeating Mother Russia and how we, uh, the capitalism is winning. And there is a bit of that. Who was it that came out with the first winning vaccine? Which, by the way, on this podcast, I declared I'd take. It was your boy, Vladimir Putin, with his Sputnik vaccine. That's the kind of positive journalism you're looking for. Vladimir out there shirtless on a horse saying... <laughs> We figured this out. We have the vaccine. We're winning. And it was Wait, out there. And you made fun of him, though. You you had your you had uh, kind of a sassy voice. You were sort of, oh, the Russians have a vaccine. And remember that? And we should have been promoting it and saying, Mr. Putin is leading the world in vaccines. I said I'd take it. I may have made fun of Putin, but <laughs> that's endemic. But yes, absolutely. That's the kind of journalism you're looking for. And he's still doing it. And I would say he's winning COVID in terms of the popularity of his vaccine, which now he's exporting to Europe because the Europeans have messed this whole thing up with the way they purchased the vaccine and their sole dependence on one. I mean, Putin's got that pro, uh, pro-COVID fight winning. And therefore, there should be a, another story written about it, at least to make ourselves feel better. But that would go into our self-loathing, right? Aren't we supposed to hate the Russians? And therefore, if the Russians are doing something good, we have to find a way to belittle it a little bit, right? I, I guess so. But I think that they're doing the kind of journalism that you would like to see us doing. But yet, we don't want to... Maybe we don't want to champion the vaccines because we see it in the face of everybody suffering because there are so many articles about the suffering. I've got kind of a final question. I was thinking about the Washington Post. It has a new motto, and it's a very dramatic one. It's democracy dies in darkness. And clearly the idea is to shed the light on truth and to let the engaged citizenry of America know what's really happening. While I think there maybe is still some truth in that, do you think there's any truth in the idea that democracy can also die in a really hot spotlight of reporting, comments, memes, cable news, and all of this stuff just creating almost paralysis as nobody knows if the news is even true anymore. Fake news is now a word that is used pretty regularly 
And do you think we could maybe overexpose stories to the point where nobody even knows what to think anymore? I think we get overexposed and we get callous. I read the Wall Street Journal Monday through Saturday, and then Sunday I get the New York Times. And it's just exhausting to read. There's so much human interest and so many tragic stories. It's just so melodramatic. I just, I get calloused over reading it. I have to flip by it, which is, by the way, why I like reading rather than watching news, because I want to flip by this thing. I just can't see it so much. And so, yes, it just gets so dark that it's not even worth paying attention to. And I think that's what we have a little bit in our society is people are losing their focus and not paying attention to it. I also think that we're dealing with a very focused population. You know, you're talking about reading the newspapers, you know, versus watching TV. I think those are two totally different dynamics and different segments of the population and how they're engaging with media. So I think that the newspaper readers are like Don, you know, who are committed to that and it's an investment of their time. Whereas the people who are watching on cable news, it's more of a fly by night thing and they turn it on, they turn it off. They engage as they want or on their phones through the social media is maybe another dynamic. But I don't think, I think to draw, to paint a broad brush with all of that, I think that that, I think that the Washington Post motto is focused on its readership and they know who their readership is and they know who that's appealing to. I don't think that that's drawing in necessarily. I mean, I think they hope so, but I don't think it's necessarily drawing in the cable news populace. Well, I once, I once read a book by Chuck Klosterman who was talking about the idea of media bias a little bit and that you just said it, Mark, about each organization hopefully knows its audience and it has a pretty good profile of their typical reader and they will work to slant and, and make stories that their reader is going to want to read or consume. And therefore, what do you think when you hear, oh, you know, more media bias here today? I think that it's a circumstantial situation. I think there are cases of media bias where you know, things are, especially on, as we're talking about the cable news, where things are driven by outside factors, ratings, how much the talent is getting paid, how much they need to feature someone to appeal to something, advertisers shift affecting content, unfortunately, versus, you know, the newspapers where it's more of the traditional journalism and they're dying as a result of that. Most of them, obviously not the bigger ones, Times, Post, Wall Street Journal, but the smaller ones. 25 years from now, what do you guys think? Do we still have newspapers in America? I don't know if they'll be delivered, but they will be some sort of newspaper organization. I hope they'll be delivered. I know there's about 10 people in my neighborhood that get the Wall Street Journal, myself included. I'm afraid that they're going to die off and they'll stop delivering to me. Yeah, I think it. I think it's a shift. I know. I think it's, I mean, not exist. I don't, does it even exist other than those large ones? Do they exist in the consciousness you know, of people now, newspapers versus what they did 10 years ago. I think that they're an afterthought and until, unless they can prove that they can survive in a different way. And I don't think they've proven that yet. So I think that it's all shifting to social media. And uh, in that respect, I think there may be niche organizations, but I think it would be more um, not the newspapers and the organizations with the brand names as we've known them, other than the, na the national significant ones. Like in Detroit, you know, we've talked for 30 years about having one paper you know, since the JOA started and it hasn't happened. We always feared that we're like, it's going to happen. It was always the scuttlebutt that it was going to happen in one paper. Well, now, you know, I don't, th I think that if there were no papers in Detroit, you know, there would, something would fill the vacuum of the local news, but it would probably be television more than television reporting. I think because people are still engaging with that. Even television's done a much better job of engaging online 
in terms of the platforms and in terms of delivering quick content and that thing than uh, the newspapers have. There's a tremendous loss here. And the loss is a news feed that is not customized to you by your algorithm and that you just get a full picture of what's happening. If not in just the county like the Oakland Press used to be or the state like the Free Press is or was or the nation or world like perhaps the Times or the Wall Street Journal and getting a whole picture that you see things that you want to see, but you see things that you don't want to see or that you wouldn't normally be interested in and it's presented to you. And this wide-ranging understanding of what's happening locally and in the world is something that is falling away as people just stick to their Twitter feed, which may be aimed just at their local interests or their political interests or just not very diverse. Yeah, it's a a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? I mean, we're becoming more dependent on hearing the things and seeing the things we want to because we can customize it that way. And so it just shifts us permanently in that direction. Well, I like what you said there, Don, about being forced to see all of the headlines, not just the ones you want to see. In some ways, it seems like a regional or local news organization is almost like a utility. It's almost providing a really critical service that maybe people are aware of. Mark, do you know if like the free press ever looked at just trying to be adopted by like the Ford Foundation or find a billionaire of their own? Obviously, Jeff Bezos bought the Washington Post and find somebody with just so much money that like they're going to run the organization. But if it runs at like almost no profit or maybe even a slight loss, it's not a big deal because people just feel like it's important that we have that. Do you think that's a model that could work? That's part of the mindset of, you know, not shifting. You know, I think that for so long, the independence was so valued that if Ford had approached them, they'd say, no, of course not. We can't have you buy us. We can't because we'd be slave to, you know, Ford advertising or not in the right negative, negative articles, you know, about Pinto or whatever it is, you know, when there, <laughs> when there are problems that, you know, happen. And I think that independence was something that newspapers especially valued for so long. And then that was part of what led to their death, though, I think as well, because you can't exist that way in the modern world. So I think that, you know, look at the Bezos has done a good job, but it was a lot of fear at the Washington Post, you know, about how heavy handed he would be. And, you know, they say they don't pull punches on him, but obviously it depends on what they would find. If they found some big expose on him, I mean, I don't think it would come to print. Now, maybe it would find its way into the New York Times from someone at the Washington Post or something like that. But uh, it's, uh, I, I see that as a non-sustainable circumstance in term, if you're talking about journalistic ethics. Now, if you're talking about the way things have evolved, I could see that there being some type of, you know, some type of, you know, rich person who drives those things, but it's just not going to, it's just not going to be as independent as you would ideally hope it would be in the past generation. There you go, Zach. You wanted to make billions. If you get your billions, you can be the sugar daddy to a newspaper and run it the way you think it should be run. That's it. Now, if I was a billionaire, Mark, would you ever be open for hire to uh, go become the, the chief editor in this whole thing? You don't need to be a billionaire to hire me, Zach. <laughs> I, I'm available for hire right now. Just don't tell my boss in case you know him. Fair enough. Mark, uh, thank you so much for joining us. This was very illuminating on, on so many different levels. We really appreciate it. And, and thank you so much for joining us. Of course, I'm your biggest fan every week. We appreciate that. And uh, Don, it's been a pleasure as always. And we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Take care.